I told Lisa earlier all she had to do was smile. Did I lie? I um, guess we've already, for the most part, uh, introduced Charlotte um, in uh, saying that uh, that family is a family that's grown and lived in the program. The only thing I would say is I'd go back to the, the thing that I said in the very beginning, that when I first came to know that family through the program, the thing that impressed me was that the family was involved, that the whole family was involved, that each individual was using the program in their own lives. So without anything else for me, Charlotte? This is tough being my first meetings. I remember one of the first meetings at York Street. It was an 11 o'clock Wednesday morning meeting. And they talked about gratitude and gratitude and gratitude. And I thought, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> Damn, I didn't know what that word meant. I didn't want to hear it. It was just a foreign word to me. But I have learned. Oh, golly, so many things have been going through my head. <clears throat> I started, I was introduced to beer as a very young child. I was a preemie. My mother died two months after I was born. And my grandparents raised me, my dad's parents. My grandparents adopted me and my two sisters. So my dad, that made my dad my brother, whatever, you know. <laughs> no, but he truly turned all the uh, discipline, responsibility, everything over to my grandparents. She was, she was. She was. Mercy, yes, okay. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, <clears throat> anyhow, uh, just after beer came back, whenever that was, uh, I was given a little glass of beer to help my appetite. I don't know how often or what, but, uh, you know, beer became a part of my life, and I just loved it. My grandfather said many years later that uh, he said, you know, honey, I think that really saved your life. <laughs> and you know it did. I drank so damn much of it, I ended up here. <laughs> but I used to pride myself on the fact that I didn't drink Coca-Cola because it was full of sugar. I drank beer, you know. <laughs> but I really did love that stuff. Oh, my gracious. Um, I was a spoiled child. I was my grandfather's pet. And whatever, you know, whatever I wanted, he would get me. I got a bicycle against my grandmother's orders, and she was the matriarch at my house. Man, alive. We all hopped to the tune. I said I was more afraid of my grandmother than I was of God. Excuse me, Graham. <laughs> it's the truth, though. <laughs> oh. um, I got a bicycle. My grandmother said I couldn't have one. And Gramps took me out and bought it for me. And, and uh, I said, what about Graham? He said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. But I became a wedge in that relationship. Things were going from bad to worse. Um, but it gave me a false sense. I've heard my friend Marianne talk about her dad. My Gramps was my, my favorite. He was my idol. He was a gentleman's gentleman. Uh, he never went out at night. He traveled some. And, uh, you know, booze was not a thing in my home. I, I say that, but I don't know that. My grandmother had bottles in her closet. <laughs> but, I, you know, I don't know if she was a drunk. I don't know that. 
I never saw her imbibe, and yet now, just saying this, many, many years later, I can remember this personality change that would go on. And, oh, sometimes it was just grim. She would pull the silent routine and not speak to any of us for two and three weeks at a time. And we'd all tiptoe around, you know, trying to figure out what in the hell we'd done this time. Uh, things in my house were not much fun. I met a young man when I was 16, and I lied when I was at home because I had so damn many rules and regulations. Nice girls don't do this, and they don't do that, and what if you get into an accident? What if, you know, don't drink when you go out. Don't do this. So I lied. I did all those things, and I lied. I couldn't go to Excelsior, which was the big spot to go outside of Minneapolis, and I was forbidden to go there, so I went there quite often, almost every night. <laughs> you know, they had a dance band, and we just had a ball. So, I, you know, I, and they'd say, well, what did you do last night? Well, I went to a movie. So I was used to lying. That was my way of life. And John said he was the one that people said, well, you know, you're the oldest one. I was the baby, so my sisters caught hell. I went to a, <laughs> I went to a swimming meet when I was in high school. And my sisters just caught hell. All those boys walking around, those nothing on, and blah, 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 you know. That wasn't, that wasn't nice to do that. And it wasn't nice to have a lot of kids. So I was engaged to be married, and I said to my grandmother, I'm going to have six by the time I'm 30. God heard me. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that wasn't the end of it. <laughs> we had nine. <laughs> uh, anyhow, I met this young man when I was 16 years old and eventually fell in love with him. And I decided that we didn't have meaningful relationships in those days, whatever those are that you young people have today. Um, we went together. And I decided if this was really planned for keeps, I better quit lying. And to the best of my ability, you know, I was just a born liar, so, you know, I tried my best. And I didn't drink when I went out. My folks would go out of town for a weekend, maybe, and us girls would have a six-pack of beer and giggle and laugh and talk all night and just had a ball. Uh, we went to picnics and had beer, you know, that sort of thing. But I can remember one night, I, <laughs> I had Tom Collins... And I got so sick all over my pretty formal and the flowers and the whole bit, and I'm throwing up all over the place, and I swore off a gin forever, you know. Oh, it was just awful. And I can remember my sister saying, oh, oh, here comes baby sister up the stairs hitting the wall on both sides, you know. I don't think that stopped me. I'm looking at Madeline out there, and I heard her say one time, you know, nothing I say is new. I've heard all of these things in my recovery from somebody, but she said if anything in the world had made her as sick as booze did, she wouldn't have done it again. And that's about it. You know, when I started smoking, I was about 12 years old, and I'd throw up and get sick and dizzy, you know, and I'd say, please, God, I won't smoke anymore if you just don't make me throw up. And I continued to smoke. I continued to drink. Anyhow, we got married, and... Uh, as John said, we didn't have any money, but we do, generally had beer in the house. And he started to travel, and he would see that I had my case of beer for the week, and that was accepted. And I don't know if I was pacing myself, but I would have a bottle of beer while I fed my little kids at lunch, and then I would have my lunch, and then I wouldn't have another bottle of beer until 10 o'clock at night. That was my bedtime toddy. But I, just, I can remember, I worked for an airline 
before I got married, and I used to get the, the swing shift midnight to 8, and I'd come home and have a bottle of beer and go to bed. You know, that was my breakfast, dinner, whatever meal you call that after you've been working all night. But I drank a lot of beer and got, you know, got along fine. Uh, a couple of times we got into Glickstite, which was a local terrible thing in Minnesota, and a couple of those chug-a-lug things, you know, and you depth charge, you drop the booze in and chug-a-lug. And I got pretty sick on a few of those deals, but just plain old 3-2 beer, and I got along just fine. We moved to Colorado in 1952 because we had some kids that were desperately sick with asthma. And, you know, people told me, watch the altitude because drinks really hit you hard. So for a long time, I used that for an excuse. I couldn't figure out what was happening to me. I really couldn't because <coughs> things would hit me. But it was the amount I was consuming, not the altitude. I can remember some days when, you know, I just, I'd get into the housework or into cleaning the car or doing something, you know. And I'd go through a six-pack of beer or maybe two six-packs just, you know, at noon. And then I'd think, oh, my goodness, I'm really high, you know. And then I think I'd probably blame it on the altitude, whatever. And someplace along here, we started buying a bottle for the week, and that would sort of last us. And then John started traveling, and I would look at our bottle for the week and find that it was way down, and I'd think, oh, my gosh, what happened to that? You know, I better get something to put in that so that, you know, you know, something should have been telling me something, but I wasn't getting any messages. And I was just talking to Winnie. A lot of you Alanons know Father Fred. Well, his brother, Father Andrew, gave a retreat down to El Pomar a long time ago. And among many things he said, but the, this I remember distinctly, he said, ladies, never drink alone. Now, this was not an alcoholic retreat or whatever they call those retreats. This was a religious retreat. And I thought, well, that's crazy because I'm going to have my cocktails before dinner because, and John's gone all the time, so I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And we would, you know, when he was in town, we'd have a couple of drinks, and then John would start to serve the children, and I'd pour a little bit more in my glass, and, you know, that was okay. I just thought, he doesn't like it as well as I do. But, at, oh, well, never mind. Anyhow, I was having a lot of kids, and I was alone, and self-pity. You know, some Al-Anon asked me one time, which came first, the self-pity or the drinking? And I said, it's just a vicious circle. You, got, you start drinking, and then the self-pity sets in, and then, the, you know, and then you don't drink, and you got self-pity, so you drink to drown that. What, whatever's the difference, I don't know. But someplace along the, the way here, I started hiding bottles and didn't know that that was not normal. I just needed more than others. I don't know, wh- I don't know why. But I also quit reading articles about alcoholism. And one day, Mercedes McCambridge was on some afternoon talk show, and the whole family was there. And I just, I, could, I couldn't contain myself. I rustled papers. I, you know, oh, I did all sorts of things to keep those people from hearing what she was saying. And, you know, since I sobered up, I heard her. And uh, it was truly something to hear. But it was just things were going from bad to worse. I was... You know, off and on, I thought, what am I going to say? And I think, I can't think about that now. But I remember one time I, I was in the kitchen, and John said, what happened to the car? And I said, I, well, I was sideswiped. I didn't have any idea what he was asking me about. I had a whole car full of kids, and I had 
glommed onto some kind of a sign and just ripped the whole side of the car, and I had no recollection of that. And, I, you know, this came to me, and I used to say I never drove when I was drinking. So obviously that is not true. And there were many times I hadn't had a drink, but I had the shakes so damn bad inside that I shouldn't ha- had no business driving. But I, I didn't get any tickets until I sobered up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said I didn't lose my kids. They just kept moving out. I didn't lose a husband. He just kept leaving town, you know. <laughs> oh, gosh. And the pain was getting bad. I can remember one time in the kitchen again, and John said, Charlotte, the children tell me by the time dinner's ready, you can hardly make it to the table. And I didn't know that. I really thought I was doing just fine. And I didn't know that I talked incessantly. I didn't know about the mood changes. My oldest son said to me one time, he said, Gee, Mom, you're a pretty neat lady when you're sober, but he said, You've got these kids so damn confused, they don't know whether they're on foot or horseback. He said, One minute you tell them one thing, and the next minute you tell them something else. And one of them would say to me, Well, Mom, I told you that. And I'd think, oh. Or else they would say to me, Mom, you've told me that six times. Then I'd get to the point where I thought, you know, I really shouldn't say anything, but that would be the day I didn't say anything. (laughs) But everything that went wrong I thought was the fault of my drinking. I broke a beautiful terrine that was one of my gorgeous possessions one time, and I stood there and bawled like a baby. If I hadn't had a beer, I wouldn't have dropped that. You know, well, I drop things now, they break, you know, and I say, so what? It happened. I was so damn lonely and scared. I used to wake up about 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever time, and all this stuff would start going through my head. What in the hell are you doing? And I didn't want to be the way I was. I didn't start out to be an alcoholic, guys. I heard a guy came to a meeting. He was from Houston, and he said he never had been to an AA meeting where anybody came and said, Yay, I made it, you know. Uh, <laughs> It was not my aim in life to, to become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Matter of fact, we used to have family conferences, and John and the big kids, the little kids, I don't know how they were, but they couldn't come into this big conference. We had a long, narrow house on Cook Street, and we'd all go in the parlor, you know, and then we'd talk about what we're going to do about Ma's drinking. Oh, I hated those things. Anyhow, this one time they said, would you go to a doctor? And I said, Sure. And if there's nothing wrong with you, then you better go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, I will not. So I went to the doctor, and he, you know, all this stuff. And it had been all set up. John called a friend of ours who's an OBGYN, and he called this guy, and, you know. So he asked me how much I drank, and I told him a pint a day. And I didn't lie. I did, at least, you know. (laughs) So he said... uh, he said, your liver is, is damaged. He said, we want to do a biopsy. And I thought, no, you're not. And he said, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror every day and say, I'm an alcoholic. And he didn't know, and I think Emily when I say this, he didn't know I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I couldn't stand the pain of seeing what was going on with that face. And I couldn't say, I'm an alcoholic. That was so bad. Oh, my gosh. We knew some of those guys, and they were terrible drunks. So I couldn't say that. But that was his solution to my problem. I keep thinking, someday I'm going to go back to him, and I'm going to say, you jerk, why didn't you tell me to go to alcohol? Well, I wouldn't have gone anyhow. (laughs) What's the difference? So I came out of his office and went down to the corner and bought a bottle and went home. 
And uh, I have a, one daughter that is a member of the Al-Anon family group. She's not here. She could tell this story a whole lot better than I can because I don't know a whole lot of it. But as Lisa said, you know, the kids are coming to me and they say, Mom, we can't bring anybody home. We never know what condition you're going to be in. But I'll tell you this much. I heard a lady last night talking. My house was a whole lot cleaner when I was drinking than it is now. I just don't care. I'm having a ball. The hell with this house cleaning stuff. <laughs> But then I had to prove something. I was up on my feet every single morning, unless I was really sick, which wasn't much. And my, you know, a couple of the kids would say, I don't know how you do it. And I never said, you know, I don't know if I had hangovers or not. I denied it for so long. John used to turn pea green, and the kids would say, hey, Dad, what's the matter? Is it bad ice? <laughs> he just turned green. But I was up and, you know, bright and cheery and, uh, hmm. Then about, you know, I'd have to take a nap, though, because I'd start drinking in the morning. Anyhow, I could go on and on with this, but, you know, I never, I don't think I ever beat my kids. I took a belt to them a couple of times, but that was really when I was desperate. But I beat them verbally. I used to ridicule and, you know, just lousy. And for that, I wish hadn't happened, you know. Um... Then came the day that our daughter was going to be married, and by this time my drinking was really in bad shape. My tolerance was so down that it didn't take much. And she decided to marry a nice Baptist boy instead of a nice Catholic boy. And if it had been a Catholic wedding, see, that would have been in the morning. A Baptist wedding, we have to have it in the afternoon because of whatever reason. And I knew knew when she told me that it was going to be a tough go. Oh... So all the girls in Charlotte went to the beauty shop that morning to get all gussied up, and I had my little bottle in my purse. You know, you can't go very far without that. And I drank that. By that time, I had the shakes so bad, you know. And by the time it came for the wedding, I just was, you know, kind of in and out of it. Oh, it was just awful. And I said to a friend of mine, please help me. And what I meant was if she would help me with these people. She knew all of our friends, so she could tell me who these people were took two of my sons to get me down the aisle, and I'm fighting all the way. I can do this myself. <laughs> and, oh, you know, and I, I saw the girls all crying, and they were probably crying because their sister was getting married, and I thought they were crying because of me. And it was just an awful day. I was in and out of that, that drunk all day long. Somebody helped put me to bed, and then I got up and danced, and then they put me back to bed. And I, <laughs> I heard the food was delicious. <laughs> oh, so anyhow, a lady called the next day, this lady, and she said, Charlotte, do you realize you have a problem? And I said, yes. And that was the first time I'd said that to me. She said, we'd like to talk to you. And I, and I really did have something to do that day. And I said, so she said, come over Monday. And we drove out to Lakewood, and I knew it was the beginning of the end. Her husband talked to me. He had been sober. They, these were our very dearest friends. He had been sober two years at that time. Where's Pete? <laughs> Pete knows my friend. And uh, John told me about a treatment center in Minnesota. And one of my classic comments for me, anyhow, I said, Oh, John, I hate to give up drinking because John and I have a drink before dinner and talk over the day. And, uh, you know, we hadn't had a drink together in six months. <laughs> By the time he came home, the cocktail hour was long gone for me. <laughs> so, anyhow, I said I would, like, I would go. But I couldn't go until our wedding anniversary. This is a very emotional time for me. This was in July. 
My AA birthday was July 29th, 1970. Isn't that neat? <laughs> <clears throat> but I couldn't go before our wedding anniversary. <laughs> We're hardly speaking to each other. But our wedding anniversary is August 5th, so I had to wait for that. Well, this couple went on their little two-day honeymoon or whatever. Oh, you should have seen it the day after the wedding. John and the boys, you know, the exodus with all the booze parading out of the house, get it out of Ma's way. You know, we're going to cure her right now. Oh, golly. But they didn't know Ma had to have a drink regardless. And I bought a half a pint, and my dear friend Mabel said, nobody buys half pints except an alcoholic. <laughs> and I was trying to hide that damn thing. You know, it was about that big, and I was outside in the patio trying to hide it, and there stood my daughter, the bride. And I wanted to die. I mean it. I just, I was so damn upset with myself. You know, make a mess of that day, and then here she is, and she sees me with this. And I told her I'd never do that again. So that day I said to Dan, you know, that's number one, son. I said, i got to go to this place, wherever it is. If I'm going, I'm going right now. So he told John. John got on the phone, and off we went. He said he was going to take me, and I said, no, I'll fly while we drove. And it was so grim. Oh, that first, first day in the car, Minnesota's a long way from here. And that first day, I don't know as we said eight words to each other. We can go a whole day now and not talk, but it's a comfortable silence. And the second day into Minnesota, I wanted to drink so badly, I just thought I was going to come unglued. But I couldn't stand the 20-minute dissertation on willpower and all that good stuff, so I didn't have my drink. <laughs> oh, the condemned man's meal. How am I doing? Oh, it's almost time. Okay. Um, I went to Hazelden. <clears throat> I hated being there. They give everybody a job, and I ended up setting tables every three times a day, you know. And I thought, i got a family at home. What am I doing here, you know? But I did it. At least I got to see people. We couldn't associate with the men or anything like that. It was, But I listened. And i got to say this. For anybody that's here, this is not a religious program. But this is part of my story. I was born a Catholic, and I love my religion. I had not been going to the sacraments because I didn't feel worthy. I thought I was a bad lady. And I went to Hazelden, and they said, there is a car going into Lindstrom. You may go in and go to confession, if you choose. You know, this was all voluntary. I went into confession. I got there maybe on Thursday. This is Saturday. And God and I became friends. And I knew it was going to be okay. Um, from then on. I took a third step that I knew nothing about, and it's been with me. They told me if I wanted to stay sober, I had to go to lots of meetings. No, they did not. They said, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I came back, and Betty G. took me to my first meeting at York Street, and I hated it. Oh, those people telling those terrible things, and I was told to keep my dirty laundry at home, and they're t spilling out all this junk, and I thought, this is awful. I met Red W. after the meeting. He said, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I thought, I can't do that. i got nine kids at home. Blah, blah, blah. I did. John, I, you know, I had full cooperation at home. The kids would have locked themselves in their rooms to be good if I'd go to a meeting. They'd say, hey, Mom, you going to a meeting tonight? And I'd say, yeah, oh, good, you know. <laughs> they knew it helped. And I went to lots and lots of meetings. They told me, you people told me, to read the big book and work the steps. 
I read the big book and I could not retain it. I could not comprehend what it said. So I had to go to big book meetings. My sponsor at that time had all of us to big book meetings. And Marianne and I would go to big book meetings and we'd help people with the four step and we... Anyhow, I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous and still just love it. And as John said, four years ago I started traveling with them. God has given me a whole new life. That stumbling, fumbling drunk that used to fall up and down stairs, that's as exciting as it got. We had carpeted stairs, thank God, and I used to fall up and down a lot. And here I am with dignity, doing a job. And it's fun. And I've said this before. If it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, John wouldn't have asked me. If it wasn't for Al-Anon, I wouldn't have gone. We are not the same people, thank God. Uh, some of my character defects have been removed. I am still a human being. I still have things come up that just bug the hell out of me, but I got some place to go with them. I got a nifty sponsor that's sitting back there that I love dearly. And I heard Jimmy Wilson say one time, whoops, Jimmy W., if you don't want to fire your sponsor, you know, you better get a new one. Well, a couple of times I wanted to fire him. I don't know him in tears. And <laughs> I'm not going to talk to him anymore. You know, what does he know? Uh, there's a lot of people in this room that I dearly love. Uh, I could go on and on. They say that we don't spend enough time in recovery, and I really should, because without Alcoholics Anonymous, I am a nothing. And if I take one drink, I was talking to a new lady last night, and she's, you know, she's so confident, and she's, oh, I keep booze in the house, and I go to bars, and I do this. You people told me to change my playmate and my playpen, and by damn, I did it. Not right at first, but uh, I have a healthy fear of that stuff. And this, you know, these fancy foods that are cooked with wine, oh, it's all burned out to hell with that noise. I don't want them. I cooked one of those cute little Stouffer dinners one night, and I was serving it. And I smelled something. I said, John, would you check the ingredients? Can't read out of my glasses. There's wine in it. And I thought, well, isn't this fun? You know, I can't even eat a frozen dinner. <laughs> I don't care whether it's burned out or not. Booze is not a part of my life. And this is so precious to me that I want nothing to interfere with it. And I am so grateful. I have a loving Al-Anon husband, and I'm just so thrilled I can hardly stand it. <laughs> Thank you. So now you know what I was talking about when I mentioned that spiritual love that I saw in these two people when I first met them. This has been, uh, I don't think they've ever called me crying JC, they call you crying John, but I do my share of that too. August is terrible, the allergies are always bad. <laughs> I think that brings us to the... Uh, time when this is all going to be memories for this uh, this luncheon, and uh, if you would all join me, Barbara C. is going to come up and uh, lead us in the closing prayer.